Welcome to Cybercast. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Today, I want to dive into some of the IT supply chain risks plaguing federal agencies. The software supply chain and the cloud supply chain are two exploding areas of risk. Malware lurks in software updates. More federal agencies are moving to the cloud. This means cloud supply chains are becoming bigger targets for criminals and nation-state actors. If federal IT leaders don't address software and cloud supply chain security, they could face network compromise, data breaches, and even national security threats. Trey Hare is the director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative under the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He is one of the chief cybersecurity experts studying vulnerabilities in the IT supply chain. Over the summer, Trey published two reports on software and cloud risk. Today, Trey is going to discuss some of the findings of those reports. Trey is going to highlight the biggest risks and threats federal agencies are facing right now and what federal IT leaders can do to quell them. Welcome to Cybercast, Trey. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. So I'd like to start the conversation off with your software supply chain report, which came out a couple months ago. You start off the report with a scary story about an employee for a major energy company named Liv who downloads a software update that lets in Trojan malware. But downloading software updates is considered part of security best practices. So I guess my first question is, how can federal agencies keep up with security best practices while also being aware that even those best practices might be causing security compromise and network compromise? Yeah, it's a great question. So Liv's story is not an original one. This was taking an example from the Dragonfly 2.0 attacks, malware that was running rampant in 2015 all the way through to 2017, that compromised update channels for certain kinds of software. So the answer to your question is, I think, a two-parter. The first is, it's still a good thing for users to go and update their software expeditiously every time they see the notice come across. It can be inconvenient. It might break up people's workflow. They got to close a lot of tabs to get Chrome updated, for example. But it's the vendor's and developer's way of saying, hey, we found something wrong here. We've created a fix. We need you to do your part to get that on your machine. The second piece of the answer, though, is that organizations where those users work, so thinking about the federal enterprise in particular, need to take a more active role in understanding the maturity of the vendors that they're buying software from and holding them to account to maintain and deploy secure software throughout the life cycle that they're using it. So if I'm a federal organization and I'm buying line of business software from a vendor, I should be asking that vendor, okay, what's your commitment to the life cycle of the software? How long are you going to support it? What does support look like? How frequently are you going to give me patch notifications? How fast are you going to mitigate vulnerabilities? Understanding that not all vulnerabilities are created equal, tell me how long it takes you to fix complex problems. Give me some examples. Give me some numbers to which I can hold you to account about how fast you're going to send me these fixes and how high quality they are, i.e. how often do you have to roll them back. And demonstrate to me that you've got the security best practices in place to protect your development and deployment systems. One of the things we found in the Breaking Trust Report is that a number of supply chain attacks start when developers' infrastructure to deploy code is compromised, right? They don't use multi-factor authentication. They use weak passwords. They get compromised by a phishing or a spear phishing attack. 
a lot of the same attack techniques that groups use to try to compromise organizations. In this case, the organization is the person building software for somebody else. So the federal enterprise, organizations of any kind can do a lot on behalf of their users to understand who they're doing business with and, and how that's going to help them in the long term. Could some of these risks be out of developers' hands if they're relying on open source software and open source code? Very little software is written, integrated, tested, and deployed by one single organization or one single person. Most software depends on other software, depends on other developers. Even large proprietary products like the Microsoft operating system depends on huge amounts of open source code from hundreds of different projects all over the web. So there's always some amount of trust that you have to place in these other organizations, in these other developers, in order to write software realistically. But that said, there's a lot that developers can do, just like an organization that we were talking about before, to understand who they're sourcing this software from, validating that it's coming to them without known vulnerabilities, static testing, dynamic testing to understand how that code performs under different conditions, understanding if it's been designed in a way that violates known best practices, like including credentials in the lines of code itself. So there's a lot that developers can do, large organizations who build software can do to protect themselves and to validate that code that's being handed to them is indeed trustworthy, whether it's open source or proprietary. So is there a trend within the software development community to be checking their applications and checking where their code is coming from to better mitigate these types of risks for the large organizations that they're providing these software applications to, like federal agencies? It's become a huge topic of discussion in the last five years, and it's something that's been around as a topic of discussion for much, much longer. So I think the short answer is yes, but a lot of that comes down to the individual practices and maturity of the developer, of the vendor themselves. So one of the challenges that the federal enterprise in particular faces and that it's trying to wrap its arms around right now is in the physical world, thinking about hardware components of which software matter and, and are an important piece, say the firmware for a server, but thinking about hardware for a second, federal organizations are just now starting to get their arms around a consistent set of best practices for how they assess the risk of different types of vendors and different types of products. We've had standards for years, but trying to integrate and make those consistent across the federal enterprise is a more recent endeavor. Taking that forward into software, how you understand who you're doing business with and how you understand their best practices is going to be an important part of choosing procurement partners over the next decade. Absolutely. And as software vendors pay more attention to this and their tools get better and those tools become cheaper and more available to open source developers, smaller companies, hopefully the baseline of security is going to rise and it's going to be harder and harder to launch these kinds of attacks. But right now, the landscape is pretty bad if you're a defender and, and pretty attractive if you're an attacker. Are there commercial tools for checking for this type of risk that federal agencies or large organizations can use to test applications and test software that they've received from vendors to see how secure it is? Absolutely. There's dozens of tools available to test and audit the security of code. But that really tells us about the development process and whether a vulnerability has been introduced along the way. The other piece of work that federal organizations, any organizations need to worry about is, has the developer passed them authenticated but compromised code? I.e., I've given you a piece of software and I've signed it telling you it's authentic and I attest that it's trustworthy but an attacker somewhere along the way has inserted malicious code into it before it was signed. And so it's not just a process of understanding how the code was developed, but it's also making sure that there are good security practices being employed when that code is deployed and when it's maintained throughout its life. 
So backing up a little bit, could you run down some of the biggest security flaws with the software supply chain right now, specifically the risks that they pose to federal agencies? Sure. So we identified five main classes of attacks in the Breaking Trust paper. The first was, and this is less about a form of attack, but more the attacker, was being conscious that states, especially China and Russia, use this set of technologies, use these techniques in their campaigns. That really says to federal organizations that they have opportunities to intervene and try to shape the space that those attackers work in, but that they're up against some relatively capable and persistent adversaries. So the four real categories of attacks that we found first were attacks on code signing. So one of the classic ways that a vendor tries to secure their supply chain is when they develop code, commit it as a finished product and want to bring it to users, they cryptographically sign it. And then they, they share that signature with customers. So customers can check the code that they get matches the code that the developer actually pushed out to them. It's attractive to attack this particular security feature because it allows attackers to bring in malware as if it was trusted code from the vendor. A second category of attack and a popular version of the code signing attack is to go after updates. So here, attackers are less focused on compromising the underlying code and more focused on compromising the infrastructure that developers use to actually share that code with users. There's a really interesting example of an attack from, I think it was 2015, the Flame malware, which actually attacked the Microsoft update process, not by attacking Microsoft's servers at the source, but by breaking the math, protecting the security of that update and inserting its own malicious code along the way. Those sorts of attacks are pretty rare. They're pretty challenging to launch, but it's an example of where that update process becomes a really significant point of vulnerability in the software ecosystem. The other two categories, and just to flag them, one is open source software generally, and this is where you're integrating code from a repository in a place like GitHub without checking, for example, is the library that you're pulling from, is that code actually from a legitimate developer? So there's a really common attack called typo squatting, where an attacker will upload code to a repository and name the repository very similar to a popular open source project. They might change a letter in the name from a U to a V. They might change capitalization so that it is essentially the same name. It looks very similar to those that don't know the difference. But in the case of the attacker's code, it's malicious as opposed to the legitimate developer. Uh, and then fourth, quickly, app stores. There's a couple of different ways to attack users through the supply chain that is an app store like the Google Play Store. But one of the most interesting is attacks on software development kits, where an attacker will go and take a development kit like, say, I'm building a suite of applications for Apple's iOS operating system. And I use a single development kit to let me build the same basic functionality many times without having to write it every time anew. If I can compromise that development kit, I can insert malicious code in every single piece of software that gets built until that attack gets detected. There's actually a really good example of this from 2015, the Xcode Ghost malware, which targeted the Xcode software development kit for iOS, was compromised and ended up inserting malicious functionality into almost 500 different applications. So the federal enterprise has got to be thinking about its software less as a trusted product getting put into their hands and more as a tool with an opportunity to be evaluated, something that they can treat with skepticism, but also opportunity. And I think in particular on update and open source attacks on the software supply chain, federal organizations have the ability to, in some ways, set precedent for other organizations in the private sector 
where by embracing open source and recognizing all that it can offer to them, but also treating it in a mature fashion, i.e. not assuming every piece of code that comes in the door is trustworthy, that sets a good standard and a good standard of practice for others. With app stores, it's the same way. Trust but verify. Could you delve into that a little bit more, what you said about government having the opportunity to set a precedent for industry when it comes to verifying software? So the federal enterprise is a really tricky organization if you think about it as a single entity, which obviously it's not. But this notion of the federal enterprise, all of these interconnected IT networks, differing organizations with varying risk tolerances, budgets, different maturities for how and how often they update information technology. It's a good analog for a very big private sector organization in that it has a lot of moving parts. It has a lot of internal business units that disagree with each other or want to do things their own way. And it represents some of the challenge that you have as a policymaker in trying to confront supply chain security as a topic where it's very, very difficult to get a lot of different entities singing off the exact same sheet of music. And so where the federal enterprise is able to start to drive consistent standards for assessing risk in a supply chain. This is thinking about risk based on security performance, based on how much information you're able to gather about a product, not just where it was built or who it was built by, but really mature risk assessment and risk management, setting your level of acceptable risk and working all of your various risks, managing them down to meet that level. Where the federal government can show, can be the example of how to do that well, how to do it in a mature, repeatable fashion, That's a great example to the private sector of the kinds of ways of managing this complexity that they could pick up and learn from. What are the kinds of policies that you think federal agencies could start implementing on an agency level, but also across government to beef up software security and software supply chain security? So there's probably two things I'd put up top. The first is, and we discussed it in the paper, there's been a fair amount of work on standards for secure software development but less on secure software deployment. And so we actually recommend that the NSA, DHS, and a variety of private sector organizations work together to build an overlay for the NIST 800-53 controls framework. 800-53 is a collection of cybersecurity controls that gets applied through a number of different federal compliance and risk management programs. The creation of an overlay would try to extract out the best of those controls that are applied directly to the software deployment process rather than development, and make it easy for developers to implement that set of standards. The way to do that is to demonstrate and release tools that let developers drop those security controls right into their workflow. So one of the recommendations we have is to develop this overlay and then to look to organizations like DOD and the CIO's office, like the Defense Information Security Agency, like the NSA, who's done this a number of times, and have them release the same tools that they use to implement those standards in their process to make them freely available to developers and industry. The second recommendation, and one that's a little bit more focused on open source and a little bit less on organizations policy, is to support the security of open source projects with public sector money. So one of the things that we call out in the report um, is the work of the Linux Foundation, which has collected some private resources from technology vendors and others to try and fund security improvements in high impact or high consequence open source projects. Open source projects they think are particularly important to the security of the software ecosystem. There's no reason that those sorts of resources shouldn't be amplified by public dollars. So we actually call on Congress to appropriate up to $25 million annually through DHS-CISA or potentially through the NSA 
to actually support direct funding to open source projects that can demonstrate they have significant security shortfall or are highly consequential in the software ecosystem. So to be able to take that money and spend it on additional staff and tools to shore up the security of their projects and support their long-term lifecycle maintenance. So you have another report out that came out just a couple months ago as well on cloud computing. And in that report, you talk about the cloud supply chain and how it's a myth that cloud computing isn't a supply chain risk. Can you dive into that and explain what you mean by that? Sure. So this is an interesting topic. One of the things that's defined supply chain policy debates over the last three or four years is this sort of extreme focus on telecommunications, and in particular on fifth generation telecommunications, on mobile telephony. And the argument as it goes is that 5G is going to be crucial to the country and to our allies' economic future, that it's subject to tremendous risk from adversaries, that it has the potential to transform the way we think and innovate and communicate, and it's something that we'll see widely adopted by businesses of all stripe. That's fine. And it's an interesting set of problems, although it's been highly politicized in a challenging way, not even by one party or another. It's just become a political football as opposed to a policy issue in in an unfortunate fashion in some circles. But if you take all of those arguments and say, okay, they one day are going to apply to 5G as it starts to roll out more widely, they're immediately true today, yesterday, the last three years for cloud computing. And so one of the myths that we mentioned in this report is this idea that Cloud computing is not a supply chain risk, when really, it's a substantial supply chain risk, both as part of the computing and technology supply chain for other organizations, as well as the supply chain for cloud vendors. So one of the things that the report calls out, the reason that it mentions this is twofold. First, the significance of cloud computing and its security, security of these technologies, the security of these vendors, is increasingly a focus in the cybersecurity policy debate because These vendors are so large, and because they are so widely depended on by all different kinds of customers and massive slices of the economy, that their security determines the security of a large portion of other organizations. So we care about them a great deal because they're big and they're widely dependent on. The second reason this is significant is because the supply chains for cloud computing vendors are going to become a more significant target, not just their hardware, but software over time. And so understanding and having a really rigorous approach by those companies and in partnership with the policy community to how those security challenges are managed is going to become an increasing national security issue. It's going to become increasing national importance. So that's why we called it out. So because cloud service providers and cloud ownership is becoming increasingly concentrated, what unique cybersecurity risks does this pose to federal agencies and how can they start thinking about this risk and mitigating it? So I wouldn't say that it's unique to federal agencies, but it's going to become an increasing part of the federal cyber risk landscape as cloud adoption in the federal enterprise increases. But how do we manage it? So there's probably three things the federal enterprise can do. First is understand what you're buying. One of the biggest failures in cloud security are customers that think that when they're buying cloud services, they're buying away all of their problems. In most cases, whatever risks and whatever challenges you have in your current information technology makeup, if you're moving to the cloud, you're bringing those problems with you. And in some cases, you're picking up new problems because you've got to understand all these new services and how they work together and what they do for you. So the, the first thing is to be aware and really learn and understand what cloud can and can't do where it has tremendous advantages and opportunities, and where it has real limits. Second is 
for across the federal enterprise, there's a program called FedRAMP that's intended to be a security authorization, almost a risk regulator for cloud services. So to provide cloud services the authorization to operate that they need to serve the federal enterprise. Part of the challenge the FedRAMP program has had to encounter is that the ATO, the authorization to operate process, is slow. It's cumbersome, and it tends to involve risk assessments by lots of organizations who have varying levels of expertise, both in cloud computing as well as in the underlying security controls. And so the challenge that the federal enterprise has to manage is how do you provide cloud services to organizations in a timely way without putting a process in place that prevents commercial providers from bringing their best technology, their most recent security insights, their best security operations insights to customers in the federal enterprise instead of waiting and sort of making them sit for months or years on end in order to run through this long, laborious regulatory process. The ATO process in FedRAMP is a very specific thing to call out, but it has huge impact across all these organizations using cloud. The process has gotten faster and it's slowly moving into a more automated format, but it has miles yet to go. And there's lots of opportunities to improve that process so that it in fact is a better arbiter of risk and better manages that risk and isn't impeding good security exchange and operations. The third thing cloud, from a cloud perspective, the federal organizations can do is simple. Know your limits. Cloud provides some really interesting opportunities. It's more than just knowing what it can and can't do for you. It's actually about employing those technologies, embracing them. One of the challenges that organizations run into when they move to cloud is it can be a little bit disconcerting, unfamiliar what all these different services and platform as a service and software as a service, business platform as a service, what all these different things do. Understanding how a cloud computing provider, and they're all a little bit different in the way that they operate. Understanding that how they think about their security model and how they offer services to try to manage risk, to take the most advantage out of that possible, is important. And it might involve some uncomfortable conversations or some uncomfortable changes where a piece of technology where it, when it was in your infrastructure that you're managed was a single box that you could go and reach out to and touch. In the cloud environment, you now have to break apart into three or four different services and coordinate those with each other. That process can be challenging, but it could yield some serious benefit. So we have a couple different kinds of cloud services that federal agencies are exploring right now, like infrastructure as a service, as you mentioned, platforms as a service, and software as a service. Can you discuss some of the security risks associated with these different types of cloud services and the differences between them and how software supply chain risk could affect or plays into cloud supply chain risk in this way? Sure. It's a small question. The best way I can answer this is just to talk about these as layers. And if you want more on this explanation, feel free to check out the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiatives website. We have a, a visual graphic explainer up from a couple of weeks ago talking through what cloud is and how its different components work together called Dude, Where's My Cloud? So that has some additional graphics and visual explanation. Infrastructure as a service is, is the basic layer. It's sort of the bottom of the stack of Lego blocks if you're building a house. And one of the primary security risks in the infrastructure as a service layer for organizations is attackers compromising the virtualization stack. So when you use a cloud service, you are getting access to a computer, you're getting access to computing resources that appear to you to be independent. In reality, most organizations are in what's called a multi-tenant environment, where a cloud vendor uses a piece of software called a hypervisor to make one server, one computer, look like many computers that different users can have access to. 
a hypervisor has a critically important role enforcing the boundary between each of those different computers. And so attackers spend a lot of time, energy, and, and frankly, money working to break the walls between those different user environments in a hypervisor, or even to break past the hypervisor and get to the core machine. So that's a real significant security risk. And the security of those hypervisors is something that cloud providers pay a tremendous amount of attention to. But it's a good example of software risk in the infrastructure as a service layer. Pulling up for a second, thinking about platform as a service, here you've got less individual Lego blocks that you're building into this strong foundation and more almost preformed pieces, a long rectangle, a big circle, the wall for a house instead of a, a window. Platform as a service is a really broad descriptor for a variety of services that cloud vendors build and sell or combine to sell to customers. So if infrastructure as a service is sort of the raw components, I'm getting a virtual machine, I'm getting some bandwidth through a network, I'm getting some data storage capacity, platform as a service starts to take those pieces and put them together into something useful, like a machine translation service. Can I send words to a service and have it bring me back words in another language? At the platform as a service layer, software is everywhere. Pass is software in its entirety. And so one of the interesting risks that organizations have to consider at the pass level is how they're treating their secrets, right? Most of these pass services are available to you in an organization where you're providing sensitive data because you've authenticated to that service. You've proved to it that you belong there, that you should be able to use it and it should take your data and do something specific with it. One of the big risks that cloud vendors and organizations have to be concerned about is where attackers would get in between that process and steal those credentials in order to masquerade as that user in that platform as a service environment. It's the same kind of attacks that happen in all sorts of places today. The pass is an interesting place for it because A, in some cases, pass users are actually administrators. They're more knowledgeable users whose credentials might give much broader access to the organization. But second is that pass is a little bit closer to infrastructure meaning that it may be services wired together that users don't interact with directly on a regular basis, a database that talks to a network firewall, for example. And those different services, if they're not inspected carefully, might be compromised and become a home base for attackers in a cloud stack, in a cloud service. So PaaS provides sort of an interesting set of vulnerabilities there. The last piece you mentioned, SaaS or software as a service, this is at the top layer. These are whole Lego shapes that have been sold to you pre-assembled, right? Rather than you having to do any of the construction yourself. Office 365, Gmail, services that look almost like applications on your desktop. And here, the software supply chain risk is very much like it is for those same services on your desktop. Someone has to build a piece of software, they integrate some open source, they write some of their own code, and that whole process comes together to create software that's then deployed to the user. While it's not it typically doesn't entail software being sent to the user and deployed on their machine. Software as a service still employs a software supply chain inside of the vendor. And so where attackers might be able to get inside of that process, poising an open source project or compromising a developer account at a major cloud provider like a Google or a Microsoft, there's still that significant source of risk to the user. So what users need to be thinking about, again, is having a conversation with their cloud provider to understand exactly what they do to manage that kind of risk. How do they audit their code? How do they manage their code across all these different repositories? How do they secure this development process so that what you see when you log into Office 365 or Gmail or the Chime communication service from Amazon is reliably secure software? Yeah, lots of federal agencies seem to be 
using this type of cloud service, software as a service, because I hear them talk about Office 365 and transitioning to that type of all-encompassing service all the time. So that seems to be a pretty big point of risk for them is all of the risks associated with software supply chain and software as a service specifically. Cloud computing is is interesting. It's becoming the dominant form of the way we think about information technology, but it is a rapidly developing commercial and even research area that's dominated by a small handful of companies. So you don't have the diversity and vendors that you've had at times in the technology ecosystem. It looks something closer to, say, the mainframe market in the 1960s or the earliest days of the PC market when the 1990s, when it was companies like you know DEC and IBM before it exploded into all sorts of different competitors. So that concentration creates a really interesting impact for the federal enterprise and for customers to understand who their counterparty is, but also what they can achieve in negotiating with them. And I think one of the big things that I'm curious to see in the next five years is do the norms of cloud computing shift? Does the expectation by customers about how much their cloud provider should be telling them about how they build their services, how they deliver them, is that going to change? So because cloud service providers, because there's so few of them now and the market is so concentrated among, you know, basically Amazon, Microsoft, Salesforce, Oracle, maybe one or two others, I've probably left off a key one there. Does that actually make it easier for federal agencies to secure those cloud computing supply chains and verify them because there's a handful of trusted companies providing these services? Or does this make security more complicated? I don't know that there's a good answer for you. It's hard to say because as the market shrinks, to some extent, there's less incentive to be at the top of your game from a security standpoint. There's less competition. But the market as it stands right now is intensely competitive, just incredibly so, excruciatingly so. So I don't think that we've hit that point yet, even though when you talk about the cloud market, it, it almost bifurcates where you've got the three largest American companies, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, and then a lot of other firms. And I, likes of IBM and Salesforce and Oracle, they're large, they're significant Fortune 500 companies. But the first three just have begun to separate themselves from the pack in terms of their technical capacity and their absolute total revenue, the amount that they can spend, as well as the breadth of these global services that they're able to purvey. So I don't know that I have a good answer. I think it, in some ways, the smaller community may help the federal government because it concentrates security talent. And it helps extend that social network that the federal government has with former USG staff working at cloud vendors and former cloud vendor staff working in USG where there's fewer people who have to get to know each other. But at the same time, it might reduce the federal government's leverage and really driving the sorts of requirements that it wants. And so it's a, it's a hard answer to give. What can lead cybersecurity agencies like DHS, NSA, and NISP do to help federal agencies secure the cloud supply chain and work with cloud service providers to make sure that they're meeting federal cybersecurity standards? Lots of things, but I'd pick three. One is get hip to the fact that attackers find the cloud a really attractive set of targets. And so while cloud vendors may be a bit defensive about sharing detailed information on how they do incident response or incidents that they've had to respond to that never became public, know that these issues are out there and that these vendors are incredibly juicy targets for attackers. Second, while the current set of security controls and risk management processes are useful, they're still, and I'm talking about the NIST 800-53 control set, I'm talking about the FedRAMP program, 
These things are doing important work, but they're still rooted in something closer to a compliance model than a true risk management model. And so part of the challenge for the federal government and for these lead cybersecurity agencies you mentioned is how to drive their own process of assessing and managing risk on the behalf of the other parts of the federal enterprise to a place where it's maximally agile and it's maximally focused on outcomes, i.e. the security regulatory community shouldn't be in a position of trying to keep up with every nuance and new detail in the architecture of how these services are built and more be stating with absolute clarity and holding fast the requirement that companies deliver a certain kind of outcome, that they make sure that those services adhere to a certain type of performance, not telling them how to be built, but telling them what to do. The last piece is, and I think this is really particularly important as we think about the next four or five years, making sure, and this is less about those agencies and more about Congress, but making sure that there's money available to modernize. Cloud services and all the knowledge in the world about them in theory doesn't really matter if your agency doesn't have the budget to transition more than a handful of your organization to the cloud. And so while there's been a hard and I'd say uphill battle fought by a handful of members of Congress, including one, Representative Will Hurd, who's unfortunately leaving this term, the topic of IT modernization, as unsexy as it sounds, has got to be at the forefront of the next Congress. Because without the resources to modernize this technology and take advantage of the cloud, a lot of the benefit gained by having DHS CISA or NSA or NIST really be on top of their game is lost. It's almost like IT modernization should be considered a national security issue, right? I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I think we're just about out of time for today, but I really loved what you said about government having the opportunity to set a precedent for securing software and securing software supply chains and kind of raising the bar on software security, but also what you said about supply chains for cloud vendors becoming a bigger cybersecurity target or just a security target in general, just because so many federal agencies and not even just federal agencies, all kinds of organizations across different industries are transitioning to the cloud, which is making it a much bigger deal. So thank you so much for participating in CyberCast today. I think it was a really, really interesting conversation. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Software and cloud supply chains are facing bigger challenges than ever before as more organizations move to the cloud and software eats the world. But federal agencies have an opportunity to set a precedent for common software and cloud security standards. The first step is knowing the risks. To hear more about what's happening in the constantly evolving world of federal cybersecurity, subscribe to CyberCast and stay up to date on the latest cyber trends and insight. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. CyberCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. 